Nonprofit governance. Nonprofit answers. Nonprofit board. Nonprofit management. Nonprofit marketing. Nonprofit resources. The Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits presents Nonprofit Everything, the podcast about everything nonprofit, with your host, Andy Shurick and Stacy Wedding. Hello again, and welcome to another episode of Nonprofit Everything, the podcast where we answer your questions about everything nonprofit. Just as a recap, the way this works is you send us questions. You can do it on the nonprofiteverything.com webpage. You can do it on the Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits webpage. You can do it on the Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits Facebook page. There's probably Twitter. You can probably snail mail us if you can figure out where the heck to send that. Um, you can catch Stacy or me somewhere wandering around randomly. Um, anything that you want, any way that you can get a question to us, we are more than happy to try to answer that. The Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits provides Nonprofit Everything, the Nonprofit Everything podcast, as a free service to anyone who can uh, figure out how to download it. Um, we are eternally grateful to the Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits for making this possible. Um, they are they are our patron, and they make everything work properly. If you are a member of the Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits, congratulations and thank you very much for your membership. If you're not a member, go to the Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits webpage and uh, check that, click that join link and read about all of the fantastic things you can get as a member of Anne. One of the things that you can get, and it has just been released, is the compensation survey. So this is the survey that we do once every couple of years. We poll as many people as we possibly can in the sector in Nevada and figure out who's getting paid what. And then we compile it into a giant report. And this giant report is fantastic because it gives you what the current salary range is for every conceivable position in a nonprofit in Nevada. Um, you get breakdowns and charts about all kinds of different things, including benefits and bonuses and anything you might want to know about compensation is in there. Um, it's a fantastic way if you have to fill out the 990 every year, which you probably do. There's a section on executive compensation, and this is a fantastic resource to use. You can check that executive compensation box on the 990, and then but that you use the compensation report to do that. Um, it's available to nonprofits uh, throughout. It's actually available to anybody. You can go to uh, Ann's webpage. Um, there's a big link on the front page to take you to the compensation survey, and you can order it directly from the page. Um, members of Ann get a significant discount on that. So that's one, one, yet another reason to be an Ann member if you are a nonprofit in Nevada. And with that, Stacy and I are going to jump right into the questions. So we know efficiency ratios are a big deal with today's donors. And for our organization, it looks so different because of the type of work we do. What's a good way to talk to donors about it, educate them so they don't panic when they see an efficiency ratio that may not look like the picture-perfect ratio? That's a great question and one that's just crazy topical. We keep hearing about this over and over again. Um, so there's just recently this fantastic study, and I, I want to write about it some more because it's the coolest thing. So um, what they did is they looked at a, like over 650 Habitat for Humanity um, chapters throughout the United States. They looked at all of these chapters. They, Habitat for Humanity gave them access to their data. And they tried to see if there was a correlation between 
their efficiency ratio. So their correlation between how much they spent on administrative and fundraising, there's a correlation between that and how many houses they built. And what they found out was actually, was actually not correlated at all. So the, the chapters that had a really high efficiency ratio didn't necessarily build more houses than the ones that had a lower efficiency ratio. Hmm. So in other words, if they spent more money on programs, that didn't necessarily translate directly into building more houses. Hmm. Um, and which is, which is exactly what everybody in the sector knows, right? We, we know that every single organization is different. And I think that, that what, what that tells you and what you can start to tell donors maybe in this case is that instead of worrying about optimizing any individual piece of your organization, um, you can, what you should be working on optimizing is your inputs to your outputs. In other words, what donated services or money or volunteer hours, what those donations are, you should maximize using that, those, that set of resources. Are you maximizing how many people you're serving on the other end? Or is this, are the, you know, whatever quality of service that you're desiring, you know, is it, so if it shouldn't have anything to do with how much money you're spending on administrative and fundraising, if you're taking the amount of money that you're getting and you're building the maximum number of houses for that money, right? For Habitat. Um, What do you think? I think that that sounds great in theory. I, <laughs> in other words, you don't I, know what you're talking about. Well, no, no, no. I think it sounds great in theory. I guess I'm just thinking about practical practicality. How do you explain that when you don't always have the chance to sit down with the donor, right? So what do you do when you've got these grant proposals or you have these other, um, you know, things that donor just wants to check the box and the efficiency ratio? I mean, do you just sort of give it up? like give up and figure we don't stand a chance because of it? Or is there a way to change those numbers or use, because I'm not a finance expert and you are, is there a way to to make a better, share a better picture so that you can kind of work with the donors today that just want to check the box? Yeah, I, I mean, I think, I mean, you know better than I do, but if a, if a donor is using that as the criteria, if they've got like a hard limit, like you, overhead can't be more than 30%, you know, that's, that's just the way it's going to be. I think the food banks have done a good job and some of the other organizations have done a really good job of connecting donated inputs directly to output. So the food bank will say $1 equals three meals or $1 equals four meals or whatever it is. And that's a really, because in your brain, you're like, I can't buy three meals for a dollar. They must be doing fantastic work. Right. And it, and the way it's calculated is that's one donated dollar, which means that the organization is working in other ways to bring in money. They've got investments. There's other ways that they're using to provide the resources to make those meals. So it's not that the stuff is really cheap. It's that they're sort of optimizing the flow and they're getting that, that ratio all the way down. If you're working on saving butterfly species in the Amazon, like $1 saves like 0.000025 butterflies <laughs> is not a fantastic no, way to no. say it. But there's still ways that you can talk about how that input connects to the output in a way that the donor feels like that's a good investment. Absolutely. And I guess the other thing that sort of I struggle with is so much of this depends on, back to the original question, right, your mission and the type of work you do. So going back to the example you used about Habitat, that can be an incredibly difficult organization to fundraise for because at the end of the day, you're saying what we need, I don't know, I'm going to just throw out a figure, $200,000 to build a home that is going to house a family of four. And yes, it's going to change that family's life, but this is a really hard scenario for donors to get around to say, 
okay, instead of helping the organization like the food bank that I'm giving a dollar and it's going to, you know, result in 10 meals or, you know, one or $10 and it results in this or what, whatever piece that is. I think so many people in today's society are looking for those bigger numbers, that higher ratio. And so, I mean, it's an educational opportunity, but it's also, it's a challenge for some missions. Yeah. And the, you know, you, you do, we've, I know we've talked about this too, is you, you come across that donors that are looking to only fund a permanent solution. It's the wrong choice of words, but they're looking to fund something that changes something forever, that yes. they can make one big cash donation and polio is gone or something <laughs> like that. Right. Yeah. Um, and then, at, and you know, I've talked to somebody who's very important and gives a lot of money who refuses to money, give money to the food bank because, because they're hungry again tomorrow. Right. stupid people how can they be hungry again tomorrow and it's just a band-aid and the, the analogy yeah. is then well you know then why do we have paramedics and ambulances those people are just going to die in 70 years regardless of whether or not we save them now so why are we throwing money at it and that's the just, just the wrong way to look at it i would love to tackle this at some point from the other side of it right the donor side and i think really trying to <laughs> just bring somebody in and yell yes, at them yes, for like a half an hour shame on you <laughs> <laughs> No, we're never going to get anybody to come in and do that. Hey, Stacy and I have. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, they walk away wounded eventually yeah, like... forever after being with us. Yeah, I mean, there, there are other, other strategies when you're talking specifically about what that overhead ratio is, is to split it up into very specific things so that you can see what it's made up of. Because a lot of people think overhead is just like, you know, money that just gets thrown in the toilet. But it, it pays for the sewer bill. It pays for the electric bill. It's all of the things that sort of support the organization but don't directly get spent on the mission that you have to have. You know, Absolutely. If you need a security system because your organization happens to be in a part of town where you require a security system. So, so that's the kind of thing that gets put on there. Um, and if you, can, if you can break it out for people into what those things are and you know, how many of them are and you know, we had to buy cabling for the IT because we need cabling. And I think most people are okay with that, as long as it's not like the United Way guy bought a helicopter right. a million years ago. So, you know, that's the kind of thing that people are upset about. And so. I think maybe there's an opportunity in taking that a step further, like in sharing, like you said, more specifically, because when we just say, yes, you're going to support operating expenses, that does nothing for me as right. a donor. And yet, if you break it down into, yeah, we needed, you know this new computer because our other one was falling apart. We needed, you know, uh, maintenance. Our roof was like caving in. Whatever the point is, is, is like sharing that because you're trying to be an efficient organization to better serve those, you know, that, that you're working with and that your mission is, is, is built around. I think that donors are much more receptive to. So it's not always that they, donors won't fund operating expenses. It's maybe the way that we're communicating that to the donor. Yeah. And how much of it is like a fake problem too? Because most most donors, like depending on how, which appeal they're up, they're responding to, um, nonprofits can put themselves in a corner by limiting their appeal to just a particular program or only a program, and so they're only asking for that program money. And then you have big grantors that are looking, you know, frequently for expansion. They only want to give you money to do something new. They don't want to fund what you're already doing. They want to fund stuff new. So that's more of an education program for them. To say like, well, you know, all you're making it 
all you're making us do is make it harder for us to raise what we need to raise next year because you're expanding what we are exactly. doing this year. And we're creating, we're probably creating a program that maybe we're not ready to create yet. But right. yeah, but then they want to know, like, how is it, you know, how, what funding do you have for this five years from now? Like, exactly. I don't know. I just have to oh, think of this because you made it so goofy. That is the worst question ever. <laughs> oh, yeah. what is, how are you going to ensure long-term sustainability? And yeah. oh, we're going to ask God. you for money again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, only if we could be honest. I know. Now that marijuana is legalized in Nevada, should nonprofits take cash donations from marijuana dispensaries? What should we consider or ask ourselves when thinking about accepting this type of gift? So those are two totally different questions, <laughs> and I'm only going to address the first one. I'll let Stacy hit the second half. Uh, so, um, yeah, sure, you can take that donation money. That's perfectly fine. It's completely legal in Nevada. There's there's nothing preventing you from taking. As a matter of fact, the federal or the state government takes it as taxes. They actually have to take you know a sales tax, and they have to collect that sales tax. The challenge is that, and you know this may have changed by the time the podcast is posted, is that. Um, banks are not allowed to take money. Um, you, you can't set up a bank account if you're a dispensary. So even though it's legal because the bank is a federal entity and it's still illegal under federal law, the, the bank can't take it um, because they are subject to sort of a money laundering problem. So if it's illegal in, say, Florida, I don't know if it is or not, if it's illegal in Florida, and that would be a way for someone to move illegal money from Florida and take it out in a different state. So because the banks are nationwide, they're subject to that sort of money laundering thing. Charities are in a different position. When you give money to a charity, you don't get to take it back out again. It's not a bank account. You're giving it to someone. So money laundering, that concept doesn't apply. There's no way to launder it because you can't get it out. It's like money throwing away or money <laughs> investing in community social yes, issues, yes. right? So, um, so yeah, so the money laundering piece isn't a problem. You shouldn't really be worried about it. There are, you know, there are aspects of like, do you want to take a bag of cash and do you have the internal controls in place to be able to handle a bag of cash? Um, that's a different question that you didn't ask. And have you run into this, Andy, because some nonprofits that uh, I've chatted with about this topic have gotten the donations in cash and it's been more than what the bank threshold is where that they have to report who the, the donor or the person was that gave them the cash. So I guess below a certain limit, like if it's whatever, let's just say for the sake of this conversation, because I know this exists for a lot, if it's $9,999 and you get that, you don't have to report who it's from to the bank. But if it hits that $10,000 threshold in cash, you do. And recently, one of the banks, um, a large bank in town, actually told a nonprofit if you do that, and then we see that it was from a dispensary, we will close your bank account. So I'm curious to know if you've run into this issue. That doesn't make any sense. And I would, I would push back on the bank because, because they're not accepting the money from the dispensary. They're accepting the money from, the from you. And it's already been given to you. Once, it hits, once they give you the cash and you say thank you and write them a thank you note, it is your cash. It is not the dispensary's cash. Um, so, so they may be interested in the money laundering side of it. Again, if a dispensary figures out a way to secretly put it in a bank account and take it back out, that would be then they would be worried about the money laundering side. But that's not the case here. And I would, I would have a hard conversation with your banker about do you want my money? Absolutely. Because I don't think every bank is going to be that hard nosed about that. That is a that is a weird edge case, and they need to sort of trust you. 
Thank you for that <laughs> clarification. Candidly, I was a little shocked when I heard this, and it is uh, a well-known, a well-known uh, banker in town. And it was one of those things that the nonprofit was really struggling with. It going, so what do we do? Does that mean we lie? Do we lie about who gave us the money? Then I mean, and so it really sets up this weird dynamic. Yeah, I, would, I wouldn't do that. I would, I would push back on the bank and say, what are you, you know, what are you trying to do? Like, yeah. explain to me why this scenario isn't working for you. And if the bank can't come up with a reasonable answer. I'd talk to a few more banks because that's a, a really goofy way to protect themselves. <laughs> it is. And I think to the second part of the question, you know, what, what should, you know, the nonprofit consider or ask themselves? Um, I think every nonprofit really needs to consider their mission and whether accepting a gift like this and assuming that it's recognized in some way, what impact, what, what message that sends, what are the optics of it? Uh, are there any donors or grantors of theirs that they could potentially lose? I know there was a lot of research done, especially in Colorado when this was an issue, that talked a bit about nonprofits that received federal funding and depending on what their federal agreements and restrictions were, actually chose not to accept money in fear of potentially losing the federal funding. So I think especially if you get federal funding, you want to make sure you're super clear on, you know, any restrictions, guidelines, whatever that might say in, um, in, in the contract, or maybe it's, it, it's an educational process with the federal Nevada. agency. So but I think that's something yeah, to be aware of. So but much. then beyond that, let's say you're not getting a lot of federal money. I mean, I think really talking about, okay, if we think we could lose a lot of donors who see that XYZ, you know, dispensary gave us, you know, get, gave us a donation, then we need to make... The board needs to have a hard discussion about it and say, okay, is, is this acceptable or not? What's our gift acceptance policy? Do we need to create a gift acceptance policy um, that addresses these kinds of issues? And candidly, I probably could poke a lot of holes in, in that, um, that argument, right? I, I mean, from a donor, because at what point, what is, especially in Nevada with the kinds of um, businesses we have, you could really make a case about, well, is gaming and gaming leads to, you know, can lead to challenges and, you know, alcohol. I mean, at what point do you draw the line? And I think, but it's, it's a healthy conversation to have. Yeah. Uh, so there's actually a ton of research about exactly that. Um, the years ago, um, people started to get upset because um, lots of performing arts were funded by tobacco companies. So there's one really big, Philip Morris, they're not around anymore, I guess I can say Philip Morris, gave a lot of money to performing arts organizations. And, um, they, they did it because they wanted to sort of, I mean, first of all, it was the cause that they felt that they were interested in, and second, because they wanted to, like, elevate the, you know, if you smoke, you're fancy, right? right. So we're going to give to opera and that kind of stuff. And, and so they did a ton of research, like, some researchers, like, so, so do people feel, can you feel negatively about a charity because of sources of their donations, because they're specifically from a corporate source? So can a corporation and have them giving money to you, can they hurt you overall because of the relation, because of what they do? And the answer is only in very limited circumstances, and those limited circumstances were in the culture section, sector. So if you are a, an avant-garde theater company and you're taking money from giant conglomerate, <laughs> um, you sort of lose some of that artsy credibility, Absolutely. that sort of edgy artsy credibility, and, and that's the only case in which a corporate sponsor was, was damaging to the nonprofit. In every other case, when it was 
tobacco giving to ballet, when it's um, at, when we were at Three Square, the one of the strip clubs did cans for cans. So if you brought cans to a strip club, you could get in for free, like canned goods, it, you could right, get in for right. free. Um, and we had some conversations about that internally. Is that something that we want to do? And at the end of the day, it's like, yeah, that's great. Let's yeah. take it. You know, no big deal. And yeah. and we weren't. You know, it's, it's it's they're feeding hungry people, so we shouldn't. Plus, we're in Las Vegas. What do we expect, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think for some organizations that may have concerns about this, uh, there's one in particular that I, I was just talking to the other day, and they were really stressed about it. They have a lot of um, donors that they thought would potentially be against any of this. And so what they did is they actually went, it was a relationship building opportunity, and they went out and just talked to the donors about this is this is potentially money that could help fund our mission and help grow us. But we want to get, is there any, are there any pitfalls you see with that or anything, you know, that, that would that influence your support? And literally unilaterally, 100% of the donors said, no, if you can get more money to fund your mission, do it. But it was a great chance for them to then go have that conversation um, to take, you know, to do sort of their own research among their donors and funders to see where people were standing on the issue. So I think if people really feel um, you, you run the risk when you do something like that, right? That, that you're giving the donor way too much control. So I think it needs to be managed. That conversation has to be managed in a way the donor doesn't think what they say goes, but it's more of a, we're exploring this topic and would just love to get your take on it because um, we want to be sensitive. And, um, you know, in some of these organizations, I think some organizations are also tr are trying to figure out, do we get the same recognition, right, to, um, it, you know, to someone who gives money like do we want to take their money but not give them the recognition so we don't run this risk and I, I just think those are discussions I mean I'm not advising that I think that people need to discuss this though these are great um, learning opportunities for the board and for the staff mm -hmm. to think through some of this stuff yeah the only other place that I think that it might do damage is if you are a, a nonprofit that does policy work and you're maybe you do something on drug policy. So your, your nonprofit is talking about drug policy, and if you take a bunch of money from dispensaries, that may make it so that it's more difficult for you to have that conversation. But I think in those cases, you're going to know that. Absolutely. You know, if you're all about you know, preventing obesity and you ended up with a giant, giant grant from a sugary drinks company, yes. like your donors are going to be like, ah, are you so serious about that? Right, right. So, right. But I think in those cases, you're already going to know that those are the kinds of things that might damage you. Absolutely. Well, listeners, thank you. You've done it again. You have successfully sent us a question that we have no idea how to answer. Um, Stacy and I had no concept on this one, so it gives us an opportunity to bring in an expert. Today, we've got Greg Wilkin. He is the founder of Endonamo Consulting. It's an HR consulting company. Uh, Greg has been in this sector doing HR stuff for a very long time, mostly with larger corporations, but recently he's He's moved his professional services to just working primarily with nonprofit organizations, and we're thrilled to have him take a stab at this question. Take it away, Stacy and Greg. The person who wrote this said, I have an employee who has been here 20 plus years and lacks the necessary skills for her position. Uh, she hasn't shown herself either willing or able to work to meet new expectations. I say new because I was hired as the executive director a year ago to help professionalize our organization. As the ED, I've articulated expectations, but it doesn't seem to make any difference as she truly believes she knows what she's doing. 
The problem is that what she was doing wasn't working. Two things that complicate this. Number one, she didn't write much down during the last 23 years, so we'll lose valuable information if she leaves. And number two, she's 61. I don't want to run into the perception of age discrimination. Isn't that a protected class? And then this question goes on to say, what will this look like to outsiders? Is there anything I need to do to ensure the organization is protected during this process? Are there ways to make this easier for all involved? She's put decades of her life into this place, but she's also clearly not able to meet the core functions of the position. So, wow, that's a, that's a tricky one. Any, any advice, Greg? <laughs> it is, a, it is a tricky one, and I was going to say it's a great question, but it's actually uh, it's uh, multiple questions, but they're all good questions. And uh, whoever wrote it, I uh, commend them because uh, they've really given it some thought. Obviously, this is a tough decision for them, and any time you consider uh, letting somebody go from uh, from employment, it it should be a tough decision, and you should give it a, a lot of thought. So I. Uh, I, you know, compliment uh, the writer of the question right off the bat just for really taking it very seriously. But um, the, the, I'll start with kind of the, the um, legal uh, framework. So I assume that the employee is not a contract employee. They don't have a contract employee. So most likely the employee is, is considered to be at will. And what that means is at will employees can leave their organization anytime they're not bound by any fixed contract or period of time. And alternatively, the organization, the employer can let them go at any time for any reason or no reason whatsoever. And that's what at-will employment means. Now, um, I would not recommend under any circumstances that an employer ever let uh, an employee go for no reason. There should be a reason if you're going to terminate somebody's employment. And certainly in this case, a 20-plus a year employee who has been with the organization a long time, um, if the executive director is going to make the decision to let them go, they, they should have an answer uh, or a reason, even though uh, legally they're not required to. So, um, there are really kind of two ways that they can go and two ways to, to get to the ultimate goal, which is at least based on the question, how do, they, how do they let them go? The first would be an involuntary termination for performance. And uh, the question says that she uh, or the executive director has articulated uh, expectations to the employee. Um, so I assume that the employee, the 20-year employee, has been told where she's falling short in terms of uh, performance expectations and uh, what she might need to do to meet those expectations. Ideally, th those would be in writing. There would be some written record of uh, performance management or performance counseling. So typically, it would, it would involve you know, a verbal warning, maybe a written warning, a final warning which says if you don't meet the expectations, uh, it may lead to your uh, involuntary termination. So I, I would hope that there would be some record of performance counseling for this employee. And uh, given that the executive director has said she has made the expectations clear, uh, there should be some record of that. If it's only verbal, that's okay, but written uh, documentation is certainly better 
And if the uh, if the executive director has laid out what the expectations are, provided uh, the the tools and the resources for this person to do the job, and she hasn't been able to, that's a pretty good case for involuntary termination. So. They, they certainly could go that route. The fact that she's 61, that is a protected class, but uh, unless there are other, there's any other evidence that uh, age is a factor, it shouldn't be too much of a concern. Just about everybody who works today is in some sort of protected category, um, and that's not in and of itself a reason to not uh, discipline or let them go. It's just something to, to be conscious of. Um, so that would be the, f the first option would be to just simply let the person go for performance uh, involuntarily. But given her uh, long tenure with the organization and the fact that, uh, that the executive director is a little bit concerned about uh, her knowledge and leaving it, the other option would be some sort of severance package. And if there is a larger kind of reorganization going on within the uh, within the nonprofit, or maybe this position is being eliminated or restructured or in some way, then they could um, offer her a severance package and uh, as part of a reorganization, and they could even contingent make it contingent upon her staying for a certain period of time. So, for example. Uh, your position is being eliminated in two weeks, three weeks, four weeks. We need you to stay until the very end. And if you stay and are cooperative in the transition um, at the end of that period of time, here's the severance package that we would offer you. And in exchange for severance, they could get a waiver and a release of claims. Uh, not that um, they need to be terribly concerned, but it's always a good idea if an employee, especially a long-term employee, is leaving, uh, just to know that uh, they've waived their claims and, and there won't be um, any dispute down the road. And, that, uh, and that's a contract that they would enter into on the basis of offering her uh, some sort of a severance package. So then thinking about sort of the softer side of this question, or less legal, that talked about what will this look like to outsiders, you know, is there any way to kind of make this easier for all involved or ensure the organization is protected during this process. Um, I, do you have any, I don't know, thoughts about that um, that are not, not necessarily a, the legal side of things, but that you've seen that how people have handled things to make it a bit easier for all and yeah, that's uh, and that's always a uh, you know it's a it's an important uh, consideration with any separation. Um, and in, in this case, if you know if they were to um, offer uh, her the uh, offer some sort of severance packages, you know, as part of the position elimination or restructure, uh, the employee presumably would be able to work uh, the last few weeks and and as they said, leave on a high note. Um, so, to the extent that the organization and the executive director is, is worried about kind of outside perceptions, uh, that certainly would be a consideration. Um, but sometimes, um, ha in cases like this where there is a new uh, leader, new leadership, um, 
in, you know, putting uh, your own stamp on the organization and bringing in your own team and, and letting people go who have been there for a long time actually sends a positive message um, because it says that, you know, we're, we're, um, we're changing things. I think in the question, the executive director said, I was hired uh, as ED a year ago to professionalize our organization. Uh, I obviously don't know anything about the employee who's struggling, but if if she doesn't kind of fit in with that new professional um, kind of culture that the executive director is creating, um, letting her go is uh, is could be seen as a positive thing to the outside. So it, it you know it kind of really depends on uh, the circumstances, but it isn't. Letting somebody go isn't always perceived as negative. It, it can be perceived as a positive thing, and um, so it, it you know it's helpful to really kind of step back and look at it from that perspective. I think that's a really great point. Um, it, and you know, perhaps none of us know this organization or or who this is that um, is writing this, but uh, perhaps there were hopes from the board that some of that maybe some internal shakeup needs to happen just for the organization to get to the next level. So um, I think that's a, someone who's not scared to make change, but can do it thoughtfully and, uh, you know, using some of the guidance you've given probably is doing what they need to do in this situation. Right. I, um, I, I always use the analogy. I, I was never much of an athlete when I was younger, but I do like to watch a lot of sports. <laughs> uh, it's, you know, it's kind of like the, a, the new coach of a team. Uh, the coach comes in and, and wants to bring in his or her own players, and some of the players on the team just didn't fit with where the new coach is going. So it, it's a little bit similar in that respect. Uh, the new leader of an organization uh, has the um, – really the right and the opportunity to uh, to build the team that he or she wants. And um, that means hiring uh, the right people, but sometimes unfortunately means letting go um, people who are, you know, part of the old regime, so to speak. Well, thank you for your insights and your knowledge and, and sharing that with us today. And uh, we'll make sure to put all of your credentials on, uh, you know, the website so anyone can reach out to you as as needed. I am a huge believer in uh, having an HR consultant on a retainer. I think it's an investment nonprofits can't afford not to make. Um, it's something that absolutely can get uh, an organization in trouble. Uh, some of the most, uh, some of the best performing organizations have had epic HR fails that have taken them back years and none of us want to see that. So um, we are through nonprofit everything doing our best to try to impart some knowledge that hopefully helps you along the way, but also bring on experts like Greg and others to, uh, to share what you need to know. So thanks again, Greg, for being with us and thanks to all of our listeners for joining. Really just thrilled to be on your show. Well, that is it for yet another episode of Nonprofit Everything. We are so excited that you happened to join us today. We hope you liked our special guest. Uh, that was incredibly informative, and um, I know we will be bookmarking this one for future reference. Um, please, if you haven't already, visit the Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits webpage to see what's going on. There are webinars that are pretty much going up every couple of weeks. 
Um, and members get access to all of the prior webinars that have ever been recorded. You can get access to all of those for free. So if there's something that you're interested in, that's available for you there. Plus, you get tons of discounts on all kinds of other interesting stuff. Uh, so, so check that out. Also, if you enjoyed this episode of Nonprofit Everything, make sure that you subscribe to it so that when new episodes are posted, you get notified. And if you'd really liked it, uh, we would love it for you to go into um, Apple Podcasts or wherever you found this podcast and go ahead and rate us. And the more stars you can give us or thumbs up or whatever, the better. Um, that doesn't just make us feel good, although it does. It actually makes the podcast pop up a little bit higher on lists so that people, when people are looking for something like this, this one's more likely to pop up. So if you think this is useful information and you want to get it spread out there more widely, go ahead and give us some stars and that will start to happen organically. For Stacy Wedding, I am Andy Schurich. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you again in another couple of weeks. Mm-hmm.